And we have, uh, the, the worship committee together, we have selected a, a, a theme for the Lenten season where we're going to look at different pictures of Jesus, different aspects of who he is and what he has done. And I, I'm trying to tie my weekly sermons into whatever theme it is for the week, like Bread of Life this week. But I'm also trying to select my preaching passages from the scripture reading challenge that we're doing each week. So hopefully I'll be able to do both of those things. This week I'm preaching from Luke 4. Luke 4, thinking together about the authority the authority of Jesus. So um, let's pray together first and then, uh, and then we'll think together about Luke 4. Dear God, thank you that this Lenten season is upon us once again. It does, at least to me, it feels early and a little bit unexpected, but here it is. I pray, Lord, that you would, you would speak to each of us in a powerful way during this season. I pray that you would reveal yourself to us, that you would help us to know you better, to know you accurately, and to increase our love for you. And to, by the power of your Spirit, increase our capacity for joyful obedience. And Lord Jesus, you are the bread of life. You claimed that title for yourself, and it is absolutely true. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. And so I pray that you, Lord Jesus, would sustain us with your truth this morning. In your name, amen. Okay, so we're on Luke 4. We just got to get there real quick. Quick overview. Luke begins, remember, the Gospel of Luke begins not with the birth of Jesus, but it begins with the birth of someone else, the birth of John the Baptist. That's the first birth story in the Gospel of Luke. John's father was a priest named Zechariah. He prophesied over his boy that, that his boy John was the prophetic forerunner. He was the one that was going to run first and prepare the way because the Messiah was coming behind him. Okay, then in Acts chapter 2, we do get the arrival of the Messiah. I, I said Acts. In Luke chapter 2, we get the arrival of the Messiah. In fact, Luke 2 is probably the most famous uh, telling of the Christmas story and the birth of Jesus. In chapter 3, you, we, you, Luke all of a sudden leaps ahead in chapter 3, and we get to the adult ministries of John and Jesus. John is, in fact, preparing the way for the ministry of Jesus by preaching a message of repentance and by baptizing people in the Jordan River. Eventually, Jesus himself comes to one of these preaching and baptism services of John the Baptist, and Jesus himself is baptized by John uh, and that's the beginning of his public ministry. But immediately after the baptism, instead of, instead of charging into a very public setting where all eyes are on him, he actually withdraws. And immediately after his baptism, he goes out to be alone in the wilderness. And we get there uh, a scene that's reminiscent of the scene in the beginning of the Bible. What I mean by that is it's a scene of temptation, right? The Bible begins early on, Genesis 3, with a scene of temptation. And the humans that are tempted at the beginning of the Bible, as we just heard, our young people told it so well, they, they didn't stand firm and they didn't bash the sermon on the head. They gave in to temptation. They failed 
uh, when they were presented with temptation. Well, now, much, much later in the story, we have Jesus, the Son of God, being tempted again by the evil one. But this time, uh, the hero of this story stands firm and does not give in to temptation, but remains pure. Okay, now he returns after that and uh, begins the public phase of his ministry by teaching, preaching in the synagogue. And so that's where we find him in our passage this morning, teaching in the synagogue. And so we're in Luke and chapter 4. And I'm going to start in verse 31. Luke 4 and verse 31. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. And he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed, said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out, and reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had, only, who had any who were sick with various diseases, brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God! And he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And this is the word of the Lord. I see when I read it, yeah, it's a series of little, little stories in the life of Jesus. So often when we're reading the Gospels, you know, you get... Just that, just these little snapshots of moments in the life of Jesus. When I, when I read these in succession, what we just heard, I see three different ways that the authority of Jesus is on display. I see this, these passages, these little short vignettes, are all about the authority of Jesus. First, we see his teaching authority. That's how it begins, with him preaching a sermon in a synagogue, and we see the authority that attends his teaching. Then we see his authority over evil, right? He casts out an unclean spirit. He casts out a demon, demonstrating authority in the spiritual realm. And then we see his authority over disease. He casts out a fever. He commands disease, and it obeys him. Now that is authority. And so those are the three things we're going to look at. His teaching authority, his demon casting authority, and his healing authority. So, okay, first, teaching. He's in Capernaum. It's a Sabbath. It's a Saturday. He's teaching. He's in the synagogue. And we're told that everyone who can hear him is astonished by his teaching. It's a strong word. It means, like, blown away, amazed, astonished. They cannot believe what they are hearing. It's not what they expected to hear when they got up this morning and walked 
to the, to the synagogue. Now keep in mind, these are people who have been listening to, to preaching, to sermons every week, their whole entire lives. It's what they do on the Sabbath as they listen to preaching. Every week they come together. The law and the prophets are open. Every week a rabbi sits up there and preaches a sermon on the biblical text. Typically they sat when they preached. Uh, the, these, these people, they were not they were not resistant to that. They were not upset by that. They liked preaching. It was a thing they enjoyed. They liked sitting under good biblical teaching. But all of a sudden, here's this visiting teacher, right, who comes to their synagogue and preaches a sermon, and they're all just blown away. They cannot believe. They are astonished by the sermon. When's the last time? No, don't answer that question. Why are... Why are these people astonished? Why do they come maybe half asleep? Maybe, okay, we're going to hear another sermon. And they were just blown away. What happened? What happened that morning in that synagogue that made them astonished? Well, Luke doesn't keep us guessing. He tells us, right? I know for sure. I know for sure what those people were astonished by. Not because I was there, but because Luke tells us. They were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. That's the answer. They were astonished at his teaching. Why? Because his word possessed authority. The authority of the teaching of Jesus was astonishing. Astonishing. That's an important point that Luke is making. Because you know what? The scribes and the, and the rabbis, they had authority. They read the law to people. Most of the people did not possess their own copy of the law. In fact, hardly nobody did. So they had to listen to the rabbis read it. And then they listened to the rabbis interpret it. And their interpretation was considered authoritative. They did have authority. At least until this guy Jesus showed up in the town. And he started preaching. Jesus started preaching. And all of a sudden, everybody was astonished, and they said, oh, so that's what real authority looks like. We thought we had it, but now we realize what real authority is. It's not actually like the scribes and the rabbis at all. Now that response shows us two things. It shows us the authentic, undeniable power and authority of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, when he speaks but it also helps us understand why the religious guys hate him so much, doesn't it? You ever wonder that? Like, what are they, seriously, why is there such a burr under their saddle? Why are they so upset about Jesus? He's just another teacher. Well, one of the reasons they're so upset is because when you've seen the real thing, the bad imitation sort of loses its appeal, doesn't look so good anymore. And if you are the bad imitation... You're going to do everything in your power to silence the one that's ruining your reputation. That's what's happening here. Think of it like a, like, have you ever had this happen where like a local hometown high school sports hero, right? Maybe you've known someone like that. Maybe you were someone like that, right? And it's the kid that everyone thinks is going to be a famous professional athlete because they're better than everyone else in the neighborhood, better than everyone in the school, but then that kid goes off into the big world, tries his talent against guys who are twice his size, right? And twice as fast, and all of a sudden he's not quite the superstar anymore that he thought he was, right? We had a guy like that 
on our baseball team, Danny Wynn. He was amazing. He was, ama- he was the best pitcher. He was the best hitter. He was the best outfielder on our team, in fact, in the whole league. Right? He was drafted by the St. Louis Cardinals. We all thought for sure he was going to play in the major leagues. We all thought for sure our friend was going to be famous and we'd be watching him on TV. But what he discovered is that when he was playing against teams where every player on the team was the best player in their high school, he didn't quite stand out as much as he did before, and he never made it to the big leagues. The authority of the scribes is like that. It sounds fine, it sounds good, as long as you have nothing to compare it to. Right? They, they, as long as they're the only game in town, they sound good. They sound smart. They're articulate. They look the part. They sound authoritative. But once the people in the synagogue heard Jesus teach, this is so important, once they heard Jesus teach about what the law really meant, they suddenly realized what authority is. And the teaching of the scribes immediately lost its appeal. Right? That is the difference between the authority of God and the authority of the world. The authority of the world sounds impressive because people are impressive as long as you don't have the real thing to compare it to. Right? You get a guy who's intelligent and articulate and passionate, been to school, has those letters behind his name, uses big words and long sentences. He sounds pretty authoritative. Right? And he, he tells you that, well, you know what? You're not really as smart as the rest of us, but, but all the smart people in the universe, they know that really we're just here by chance. And that really it just all exploded out of nowhere. The smart people can tell you how this happened. That there was nothing, and then suddenly there was something, but nobody created it. It's just how it happened. And people hear that, and they get fished in by it because the guy who's speaking sounds authoritative. And you think, well, who am I to question him? He's the guy that went to the school, that did the things, that has the letters after his name. Who am I? He's the one with the degree and the elbow patches on his Sweater, he must know what he's talking about. And before you know it, he's telling you all kinds of things. And you just take it, well, he's the expert, not me. And he's telling you that that lump of tissue inside a woman's womb is not really a human being. Don't worry about it, it's something else. Don't bother, don't be concerned. And by the way, there's really no such thing as boys and girls. That's just a fluid continuum of gender. There's no difference between men and women. Don't worry about that. God would never be so patronizing as to suggest that men and women might actually have different God-appointed roles to fill. They tell us that actually everything is relative. There is no such thing as objective truth. There's just your truth and my truth. And you can hold your truth all you want, but you better not try to impose your views onto me. Except, of course, that the secular prophets want us to believe that everything they're saying is true. But other than that, there's no truth. And people get fished in by that stuff because they do not know what real authority is. That's the authority of man. That's the authority of the world. And it can be impressive and persuasive until you have an encounter with the breathtaking, 
jaw-dropping authority of God. And in that moment, the authority of humans gets revealed for what it is. It is the local sports star trying to take on Michael Jordan one-on-one. Multiply that times infinity, and you start to see the discrepancy between the authority of the world and the authority of Jesus. There is no comparison. And the only people that are fished in by the authority of the world are the people who have never experienced the authority of Jesus. Because there is no comparison. The authority of Jesus will either drive people away because they don't want to admit that there is an ultimate authority in the universe greater than their own personal authority, or it will bring us to a place of reverence and worship where we say, This is different. This is something different than the authority that the world has to offer. This is exactly what my heart has been looking for. And you, Jesus, where you lead, I will follow. And your people will be my people. And my life will be all about you. So the bottom line is that an encounter with the teaching and the authority of the living God produces one of two things. It either produces worship or rebellion. Always one of two things. Worship or rebellion. Because people either love it or they hate it. Okay, on to the second point. That was Jesus' teaching authority. And it was different than any other kind of authority. Now Jesus' demon-casting authority is authority over evil. The authority of Jesus is revealed through his teaching, and then immediately that authority is challenged, right? Isn't that always the way, right? Someone teaches something, and then immediately that gets challenged, right? Whenever the authority of Jesus is asserted, it is challenged by the evil one. There is such a thing as the evil one. He does have powers and principalities and hordes and dominions, and he would like nothing better than to rob the truth from you, and in the process, destroy your soul. And maybe you hear that and you think, come on, that's a little dramatic, isn't it? Hordes and dominions? Who talks like that? Uh, it, it might even seem a little embarrassing, like kid stuff, to talk about a cosmic war against the forces of evil. And maybe some of us believe those things in theory because the Bible teaches them and we don't want to disagree with the Bible. But functionally, we don't really give much thought to the concept of spiritual warfare and the forces of the evil one. Well, it's probably good for us when we get to a passage like this to take a moment to remind ourselves that the devil is real. His dominions are real. The spiritual war between good and evil is real. And in fact, there hasn't been a moment of truth, truce in that war since Genesis 3. And to pretend that that is not the case is to put yourself in a very vulnerable position. Maybe the only thing worse than to be in a war is to be in a war and not know it. Right? The fact that we're engaged in a cosmic spiritual war against an opponent who's real and powerful doesn't need to scare us or drive us to despair. It, that would only be a problem if Jesus didn't have ultimate authority, but he does. So whenever there's a power struggle between the authority of God and the dominions of evil, God wins. This confrontation between Jesus and the unclean spirit in which Jesus rebukes the demon and it flees away like a little kid, it's in our Bibles so that we can be amazed by it. 
so that we can experience for ourselves the awesome authority of the Son of God who even commands evil, the forces of evil, and they obey. And so the, let this passage put courage in your soul. This dem demonic spirit comes to challenge the authority of Jesus and to intimidate the people who just heard him teach. And Jesus is not the least bit intimidated or overwhelmed or frightened, not at all. He simply rebukes the demon, says basically, be quiet and come out of him. And that was it. And the confrontation was over, and the man was, we're told, unharmed. He commands this evil spirit, and it has no choice but to obey. That is just a little window into the absolute authority of Jesus. And people say, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. That's the authority that these people in the synagogue were exposed to. That's the authority that we're exposed to when we encounter the risen Christ. And we can either resist that and rebel against him, or we can fall on our knees and worship him. Okay, third and last, we see his authority even over disease. They go to Peter's house for some fellowship after the synagogue service, probably for some soup and buns, and there's Peter's mother-in-law. She's sick in bed with a fever. Jesus turns this illness, this fever, into an opportunity to perform a physical healing and to demonstrate that his authority extends not only to the spiritual realm, right, to things we can't even see, like demons, but in fact also to the physical world. He even has authority over inanimate objects. Disease itself obeys the command of Jesus. He can rebuke a fever, and it listens. I mean, demons are at least personal beings, right? It makes sense that you could issue a command to them, and they might have to obey it. But now he's commanding inanimate objects. He's commanding fever, and it's listening and obeying. How does a fever obey a command? Have you ever wondered that? This is almost inconceivable authority, right? This man has just taught with such authority that it left his hearers astonished. He has demonstrated absolute authority over the powers of evil by rebuking a demon and casting it out of a man with his voice. And then he goes to Peter's house, and he rebukes a fever, and it obeys. And now you might think that someone who wields that kind of power would be totally untouchable, right? Just so far above everyone else that no regular people ever get close to him because he's too powerful and he's too important, right? If you think of people who have power today, it's kind of tough to get close to them. But listen to this. He laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Jesus could heal with nothing more than a command of his voice alone. If he wanted to, he could speak and it would happen. But this is a good picture of the personal, compassionate nature of the living God. The one who created the universe is not a distant God who wants nothing to do with us. He is a personal, loving God who personally took on flesh and entered into the human drama. And when he came to earth, he did not separate himself out from common people. He did not install himself in a palace with guards surrounding it. He didn't fill his schedule with meetings with only the most important people. He entered into regular people's lives. He ate with people. He formed relationships with people. And he touched people when he healed them. And he's still reaching out and forming that kind of intimate relationship with those of us 
who have ears to hear. He's still healing us. He's still making us well. Jesus is not an abstract concept that we get together on Sunday mornings to talk about. He's not a historical figure who said some interesting things a long time ago. He's not merely a role model that we try to intimidate. He is a real, living, risen Savior, the Son of God. And he is personally available for a real relationship with all those who receive his precious gift of salvation. The image that our Lenten liturgy this week asks us to consider is Jesus, the bread of life. That picture is an intimate one, right? Food is not just about fuel. We humans, don't, we don't just eat like putting gas in a car. We don't, we don't just eat so we can run this machine that is our body. Eating is a relational act, right? We, 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 we eat to relate as an expression of relating to one another. We don't just all go excuse ourselves and eat in private. When Jesus said, I'm the bread of life, yes, that's a statement about Jesus, but it's also a relational statement. Right? When it, it, he's talking about a total encounter with himself. Right? He's our sovereign creator, but he's also our daily sustainer. Right? Bread. What's more normal, what's more present in our lives than bread? Right? He's the creator, but he's also the daily sustainer. He's over us, but at the same time, he is alongside of us. He's both our God and our friend at the same time. And so that's where our Lenten journey begins this year, by considering the absolute and overwhelming authority of Jesus, right? Incredible authority, teaching authority, a spiritual authority, authority over even the physical world. And yet, despite possessing all the divine authority of God himself, he has drawn near to us. He is with us. He has given himself to us. Not only does he eat with us, but he is the meal. He sustains us, the bread of life, the creator and sustainer of our lives, our authority and our friend at the same time. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it's amazing to think about what that room was like that day that you stood up and unrolled the parchment and preached. And just what it was that those people heard and what it was that those people experienced that made them astonished at your authority. And we are reminded again, Lord Jesus, that you, you, your authority is a constant. It hasn't changed or fluctuated. It's the same today as it was then, as it will be a million years from now, that you are authority incarnate, that there is no higher authority than you. And so we acknowledge that, we celebrate that, we tremble before you, and yet we also recognize that you've drawn near and that you are with us, sustaining us, walking alongside of us, and even willing to call us your friends. And so I pray that we would be able to hold on to both those truths, Lord, your authority, and your relational nearness. And I pray that we would experience that. In Christ's name, your name, amen.